0: The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.
1: Uh, Hello, welcome to uh, Capital Weekly's regular podcast. I'm John Howard, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today, I'm delighted to say, is former Democratic Assemblyman Bruce Young, 1976 to 1984, uh, really knows where a lot of bodies are buried in the assembly and is the is the owner of the Twitter handle Real Assemblyman, which has just astonished me over the last month. or so. who is this guy and how does he know what he knows? And I found out it was you. So, Bruce, welcome. Thanks for coming.
2: Thank you, John and Tim. I really appreciate it. Always a, a big fan of your publication, and uh, although it's sort of like now – I mean, I always say when, I'd love to go back to my district now that I'm retired because they use all five fingers to wave at me. But now talking to you all, it's like I don't have to defend some of my screwy bills or votes. So, John, it's a delight talking to you today in that
1: forum. It's actually fun to do it now, you know. So, so tell us about uh, real assemblyman. How did the how did the Twitter phenomenon start? I
2: I could never imagine a septuagenarian former politician having a Twitter account. Uh, But then my my youngest daughter said, "'Dad, there's somebody on Twitter uh, who's acting like they're you and they're supporting Trump and all this stuff." I go, what? And so we complained to Twitter and they, I guess, locked out the account. But Cameron, my daughter just said, this is silly, you should have your own Twitter account. So I said, okay, I'll take the Twitter account, but I won't post. And then it's like addictive, you know. You sit there and go, "Wait a minute, people can't really say this." And then, you know, I I uh, I do my ready, fire, aim, and uh, and so my daughter came up with, "Let's make it the real assembly." And she's also really sensitive about about identity ID. And so I was all right with using my name, but finally somebody, when some, enough people asked me who I was, I actually posted my. Um, my uh, legislative biog with, uh, you know, my junior high school photo on it.
1: <laughs> how did, how did you feel after it became known you were you? I mean, that, that everybody knew how, what, what was your reaction?
2: Well, I, I was, I mean, I listen, I come with uh, baggage, uh, you know, and it was, uh, you know, a really, uh, I spent more than, um, more than 40 years in and around the Capitol so, you know, I expected some, you know, cheap shots, but I, but also, you know, like I say, I, I'm at this point in life where it's, it is what it is. I'm not, not ever running for re-election, not in full spin cycle. So it's just nice to be honest and frank.
1: Well, it's sort of historical quality to me, because there'd been some tweets about things that had happened before, and you could see they weren't, all that knowledgeable and all of a sudden real assemblyman weighs in and I, and I thought that guy was there that guy buried some of the bodies <laughs> how did he know that so I thought really it might have been a secret account for Alex Vasser because he's really into history you know right um, but this was clearly this somebody who was there at the time and was involved in this stuff you know
2: yeah I, I just had uh, um, I was remarkably fortunate especially in a lot in the Berman McCarthy Willie speakership fight Uh, I was there at ground zero I mean the whole Berman uh, coup was planned at Janice and Howard's house uh, in December early December of 1979 and I was there and I was part of Berman's original crew and then by January Howard I mean Leo had had enough votes to block it but we spent the next six months uh, battling over who would have more votes in the caucus. And meanwhile, this uh, brilliant guy from San Francisco uh, meets me at the airport uh, one day as I'm coming back from a trip to Israel and it's Willie Brown and Frankie Vicenzi. And Willie goes, it's 41 votes, Bruce. It's not 41 democratic votes. And um, and I loved Willie Brown. I, I had actually, I'm going on, I apologize. But, but uh, the speakership fight with Berman, I withdrew as one of his supporters because my whole deal was, we're not going to take out members of our own caucus. And when they started attacking, like Floyd Morey and Jack Fenton, who were both Leo Democrats, and Fenton actually lost uh, in the primary, Floyd were lost in the general. That point, I said I'm neutral. I just don't want either of you two, and and I kind of floated out there, and I, um, and um, and then when Willie came to me, I, I mean originally, I mean just there's I, I'm not even I really don't think it's ever been written what really happened, because Jim Richardson, I mean you had to be there. I mean yeah. we originally had as many as thirty two Republicans. Now in the end, we didn't we I, we. Didn't need them, so some dropped off. But we believed we had thirty-two, and at that point, Willie Brown had nine Democrats, who, as he would say, wow. cold-bloodedly, we will walk onto that floor and make me Speaker with forty-one votes. And he said, by the time the sun sets, I will have the whole. I will have the majority of the Democratic Caucus. But
1: what, just it's forty-one votes. What, what was it that that prompted so many Republicans to lean toward Brown? I mean, they were still unhappy with the other, you know, runners out there, or what was their own party no, in disarray? What was going on? No, I, I mean,
2: I know Carol Hallett, who who's the uh, Republican leader at the time, got a lot of um, criticism for this. But first of, Willie, I mean, Willie didn't buy her off. But this was a time when we had unprecedented majorities, and unfortunately, as we see happening now, when you have unprecedented majorities, you tend to abuse and you just abuse the minorities, But Willie um, went to him and said, listen, I'll make you a deal. Every committee you'll have a vice chair and you'll get to name that person and you'll have input on the members who are on the committee. Now he said, it's only a two year deal, but that's the deal. I mean, that was, they had that or more, you know, Howard or Leo would have won. It was more of, you know, tyranny against them. They didn't count and they didn't matter. And so Willie made him relevant to the point of, hey, you get some say so in this thing. And he kept his word to that. And uh, uh, because when Willie told me that, I actually went to, long before cell phones, went to the pay phone and called Pat Nolan, who I knew very well, and said, Pat, as a, cons- uh, as a Prop 13 Cave Bear Republican, you're voting for Willie Brown. And he said, unequivocally, yes. And he went like on about why I had to do it. And, um, he had
1: me at wood. There's some irony there, you know, there's some irony there because later, uh, in fact, after you left, I really, but later in the later eighties, uh, Willie came under fire from a lot of Republicans who were convinced he was dirty. And Nolan was the one, as I understood it from, uh, I recall reading that Nolan went to the feds and tried to get, a. Uh, an investigation kicked off into him, and in fact, it backfired later on Nolan. Right. I mean, the irony of that was was pretty amazing. So he may have been a Willie supporter at one point, but he became a total anti-Willy person later. You know?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, it was uh, you know a transactional deal. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and and I also think, you know, it just I, what I can't believe is when Willie told me forty-one votes, I thought I was I knew all the rules. And I really thought I was a shrewd politician. And then all of a sudden I go, wait, it's not the majority of the caucus. He goes, no, it's 41 votes. And once you grasp that, it's like, oh, hell, we're idiots. We're fighting amongst ourselves and, you know, cannibalizing our own caucus. And here's Willie Brown. By the way, one more thing that I've never said publicly, but I know when I knew, I knew before Willie came to me, he was up to something because I was a big uh, close personal friend of Don Big O Brown, who was at that time one of the top lobbyists. And he came to me, he said, why the hell is Willie Brown asking me to raise money for Republicans? This is be, this is like in June of 1980. And I go, what, Willie? Really? And um, so I knew something was up. So, I mean, that's one other thing Willie was obviously yeah. trying to raise money for him, but uh, um, he-
1: uh, Well, he, you know, he had a, he had a, uh, a uh, habit, uh, according to some Republican lawmakers, is there'd be freshmen to get elected. And the first person would show up would be Willie. And Willie Brown would come up to, is there anything you need? Is there anything I can help you with? Let me know. I mean, he did a real serious networking job. And one of them, I believe was uh, Kathy Wright of Simi Valley whose family members had a lot of trouble with traffic tickets. Right. And, and Brown was able to step in and use some influence and help her with that. And she's forever grateful, I think, as were others on many other, you know, occasions. You know. Listen, Willie
2: so misunderstood in the sense of the guy incredibly loyal. Uh, and I mean, he said from the minute he got elected, my constituency is 41. Um, yeah. But... Um, and he, he would never like he always I think it was Jess who said you know you can take a committee away and a guy and a member will be angry you take a typewriter so that dates me take a typewriter away and they'll never forgive you <laughs> and so and, and so he lived by that I mean I, I, any I mean we used to, in the leadership used to yell at Willie about God you're too nice to people I mean he was not this ayatollah not he wasn't he just he wasn't I I, I quickly and then I'll shut up and let you you two add questions but one thing a lesson that I learned that Richard Robinson we were always rivals and uh and and so Robinson was one of the fanatical Berman supporters and Robinson really talented So, we can make a hell of a lot of trouble for us. So, we took over the first leadership meeting we had, all of us, like there were six or seven of us. Let's, you know, let's hang Richard at the airport. I mean, politically, I mean, we take anything and everything away for him, give him an office at Cal Expo. I mean, and Willie typically, if you've never been in a meeting with Willie, what Willie does is let everybody emote. And then when it's over, he goes, All right, now here's what we're going to do. And you listen to him go, shit, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't he start? Anyway, Willie's final thing after we ranted, I mean, and there was unbridled furor. I mean, Alatorre and me and Agnos, we were all just, you know, like we want Richard, you know, Robinson's political lad on a charge. Willie goes, you guys are stupid. You don't leave somebody with that much talent with nothing left to do. We're going to give him a job and we're going to keep him busy and he'll leave us alone. And so he made him chair of the Joint Legislative Audit Committee and Robinson made the most of it. And he stopped harassing us. And and it was just part of Willie's brilliance. It's why we created all these uh, Congo seats to send Burmanites to Washington. Willie, just that was one of his... I mean, he has so many qualities, but that was it. He just said, don't leave somebody that talented. And he, I look at the current speakership and I, I met Ren met awesome. a about the current. Yeah, what do you see now looking
1: at what's going on now? Uh, what do you see? Well,
2: you know, the interesting thing is I don't care how you parse it. I don't care how many spin cycles you put this thing through. This isn't about philosophy. It's about power. And I'm telling, because I've been there and done it. I mean, all of those Burmanites, Howard was actually, I mean, he was a pirate captain who wasn't a pirate, but all of us, we wanted plunder. And the plunder was committees, staff, everything. And we were like sitting out front on the porch, cutting up the whole thing. And I'm telling you, it's happening again because there's the difference philosophically and Rendon and Rivas is negligible. It's not that. Uh, if you if, When they go to bed at night, they know God. I'm going to be chair of, and it's interesting that Rendon took out um, Adam Gray and Evan Lowe and left them with nothing left to lose, and, um, and I don't know. I just I just find the whole
1: thing just
2: such a parallel to what happened in the Burman McCarthy fight. You you've
1: been in caucus votes, uh, you know, been in the caucuses, and one of the issues that came up in this last. Uh, in this Rivas-Rendon thing, was that Rivas publicly said a day or two before that meeting that he had the votes in the Democratic caucus. And so they go in, in fact, that goes to what you were saying, he forgot he needs 41 from everybody, but he had the votes, he says, from the Democratic caucus. So he goes in, and time after time, what I was told by people who were there, the, the uh, Rendon forces f- w- uh, were able to block a vote, the vote that Rivas wanted, that would have shown a majority of the caucus wanted Rivas. Right. They, they they cited constitutional issues. I don't know what that would be in a caucus, but they there are a bunch of issues. The bottom that they cited, but the bottom line was there was never a vote. And of course, that you look at it now, that was exactly what Rivas he wanted. That vote, he wanted to be able to go back to the public anyway, or to other legislators, hey, I've got the Democratic caucus behind me, but he never had the vote. Right. Uh, is that, how does that, why would he want the first place? But what does that mean? You know?
2: I mean, I, I never second guess people's opinion, but if you, I mean, you, again, I mean, it's 41 votes. It What he, sh, what he could have done and should have, Now, I won't say should have, what he could have done is go on the floor and move to vacate the chair. Yeah. Then you get the votes on that. You can't. I mean, a move to vacate the chair clears the slate. It has to be taken up before they can adjourn. And then even if Revis didn't have 41, he could have put up the majority of the caucus and said, there it is on the board. And um, uh, and and I, I, I don't understand. I know, you know, you can rationalize. Well, the unity and all that stuff like that. But <laughs> I, I'm trying to unify the caucus by taking out the speaker. Those are oxymorons. I mean, they're contradictory. And so the point is, um, you know, all the procedure stuff could have been avoided. And I know one member that I'm close to still said he kept saying, "I'll go on the floor and make the motion. You get a second, and it's it's got to be voted on." That would have given it. And I just don't. I mean, I. I mean, again, I'm going back to ancient history, but Howard Berman had the majority of the Democratic caucus, but but Leo did, wouldn't honor it. I mean, not honor, that's the that's wrong wording. I mean, he would not, okay, fine, but until you get 41 votes, I'm still the speaker, because once a speaker's named, you know, they stay there till some 41 votes take them out. And we, Richard Robinson and I, when I was supporting Berman, we used to, like, we would, you know, like just, harass, I mean, I don't know, terrorize the floor because every day we get out there, withhold unanimous consent. So that meant every amendment and committee had to be voted on by the whole assembly. And then we'd move to vacate the chair, put up Howard's votes, and immediately Jack Knox would go, you don't have 41 votes, Leo McCarthy's still the speaker. But we always put
1: the votes up on the board. If you vote, if you make a motion to vacate the chair, and it's seconded, does that basically keep the roll call, I mean, does that keep that on the, before the floor, does that keep it in in play there until the assembly recesses or adjourned?
2: No, you you cannot, first of all, you can't take up any other business okay. without unanimous consent. Secondly, you, um, you have to vote on it. You can't adjourn. No, a motion for adjournment doesn't doesn't take precedent. You have to. I mean, Revis could have demanded that, not demanded. It's the rules. I mean, he, he, there would have had to been a vote on vacating the chair. And uh-huh. again, he could have come up short, but at least he would have had it on the board. And um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you know, he's smarter than I. But I. I mean, we just always felt we should flaunt it and pound Leo with it until it got pretty tiresome. So. Robinson and I were brats about it withholding unanimous consent oh, you don't know how it is to take up every damn amendment for every damn bill in committee oh my god
0: so here's a question for you so from what I understand from reading the news uh Rivas did not want to take over immediately he wanted to take over down the road after the you know summer yeah. and so if he would have put that vote on the board and he would have won he would have immediately there would have been no way to to put off that speakership. So could that have played a role that he just didn't feel like he wanted to cause that kind of upheaval in the middle of the session? Is that, do you think, was that a play? Well, Tim,
2: I think it was, I don't know. I I mean, I think it was a play of, I don't have 41 votes. And if he didn't have the reaps, he wouldn't have had. Now, I I heard that the reaps were willing to work with him. I don't know if that was true or not, uh, but uh, any you know, if, if he said, I mean, the numbers go from like 26 to 32, to what he had, did he have nine reaps? Yeah. And did he want to, I mean, but um, that that could have been a factor. But I mean, revolution is revolution. Okay, so, you know, I mean, um, you know, I I, I don't, I, I just don't understand uh, if he wanted to have the recorded vote, he could have done. And it opens a possibility. I mean, Berman and McCarthy, I mean, nobody who was around at that time ever thought of Willie Brown or anybody else. It was either Berman or McCarthy. And I don't know if Revis is gonna find the same thing. They're talking about Revis or Rendon. What if a third party comes together and said, okay, Revis couldn't do it. I've got nine reaps. Can I get the 32? And all of a sudden, you know, I mean, the meeting that we had uh, with the Leo McCarthyites uh, at San Jose Airport, I think it was, um, The most of the McCarthy people, the 23 or 24 that were at this luncheon, had no idea that Willie, I mean, was the speaker. We had them, again, we had 32 and nine, but Willie, and Willie typically let all of them, beat their swords into plowshares Leo would s- said I I've, I've gotten you know I've gotten it so Howard's not going to take it out on you people I sued for peace and Willie stands up and goes screw that we' ta- I'm ta- I'm the speaker and you know and like and all these people that I mean I remember sitting next to Vic Cavill and Bob Campbell like what did you know about this you know it was just and and um, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, speakership delay oftentimes doesn't happen.
1: I mean, is there any rationale? I mean, strategically to delay the vote. It, it, you know, even if you think you have a transition, you may or may not. And of course, it's election year. But at the end of the session, I mean, you know, you, can, you have to come back and choose officers anyway, what, December, right? Right. So, right. So any agreement you made in August may or may not hold through. A lot of turmoil. until when, when you come back. Just seems to me, get it on the floor and get it going. You know if that's what you're going to do.
2: Exactly. I I um, I don't know. Maybe he's going to try on the last day when it you know basically he gets elected the uh, before they go signing guy in August. Then he's speaker till November thirtieth. But I um, I don't know. I I just they're out there spending a lot of money. I I mean I think uh, Revis has got. Some really, some real guerrilla political people out there. Like, man, I look at Evan Lowe and the money he's raised, my eyeballs rolling. And he's out there, uh, you know, and, and Revis and Lowe were supporting one, was in one, you know, in the primaries, there was one for one and a candidate and another on another. So they're covering their bases. But at the same time, the power of the speakership, and, and if, there's anything, again, ancient history, but when we had the votes in December, or the majority of the Democratic caucus, December of 1979, we told Howard, wait till January, first day back, go into caucus, say, Leo, we're, we have the majority of the, of the caucus, let's vote. Um, but Howard, being the principled, honest guy, he was, no, I'm the majority leader, I should let Leo know beforehand. And so Leo then had a month uh, with all the power of the speakership to try to turn votes around and get it to a tie. So uh, I just think the power of the speakership such that if I was one of Revis's supporters, I would beg, urge him to uh,
1: let's do it and do it now. Well, fast forwarding to present day, when yeah. you look at the legislature now, uh uh what do you see as any big big differences or differences at all I mean is the dynamic the same the partisanship certainly is different now it's overwhelmingly obviously democratic in both houses but um, what's your take on it now as you look back you know and you're able to compare
2: I I um, well first off I do I do I, I decry the the lack of you uh, of uh, partisanship, I mean, of, of bipartisanship. I mean, I, I, uh, I, mean, when I first got elected, we had 57 Democrats. I mean, we didn't have, uh, we, we didn't need a, the Republicans to make a quorum, but we still treated the Republicans with the respect. Uh, and sometimes, and I'm sure they might think it, but I, I just, I, I mean, things change. I know it's, as we talk today, it's probably impossible to ever imagine the Republicans having a majority of of the legislature, but we thought that in 1976 when we had 57 Democrats, and lo and behold, what ten years later, you know, uh, Kurt Kurt Pringle, or more than that, but Kurt Pringle's the um, uh, the speaker. I mean, things are cyclic, even in California, and then um, I don't know. I, I'm um, I I um, I. I do think that the extension and term limits has given a time to get uh, members so that they really know subjects, and and I think that's a good thing. And I don't know. I just I I I, I also I guess I, I also am disappointed in the Democratic Caucus that is so intolerant of um, of people who don't share their exact ideology. I mean, and like supposedly Adam Gray. Got uh, lost all his chairman chairs and 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 committee appointments because he wouldn't vote with the uh, uh, with the caucus and he was part of leadership. Now I don't know I I um, I I, rem- I would always vote with Willie when he wanted. I mean I would always vote with Willie unless there were some overriding reason. I I just quickly I I, I will tell you one time there was a debate over Bill. Involving Continental Western Airlines. And I'm on the floor arguing against the bill. And Willie walks by my, me as I'm talking and goes, don't get too wound up, you're voting for this. And so I do this double <laughs> take. And then I, everybody heard what he said. So I turned to the the, the the mic and said, okay, now you've heard from the opposition what they're going to say. I'm an I vote. And I just sat down and shut up. But Willie was also incredibly tolerant. If it meant something to your caucus or it meant something to you, he would, I mean, he'd give you a pass. He'd find the other votes. And it just seemed, I I was in a caucus that we had, I I, I don't know if you remember, but Alistair McAllister, who was really one of the most conservative Democrats that I've ever met, but not knowledgeable, sincere, Norm Waters, some other people. And yet we had Maxine Waters and and uh, LEU Harris, and yet we all worked together, and we—I mean, when—and t- and we were all tolerant. Nobody said, you know, we're going to kick you out of this caucus because you didn't vote with us. I just, w- there's a different way to do something. Leadership is—I not mean—is having the power, but I don't think it's—it's—I mean, I think the key is exercising and not—not ha- not using it. You know, have the power, not uh, don't use it. Try to find ways to lead. I, you know, and if, and I'm sure I have not talked to Adam Gray or or Evan Lowe, whatever they did. I mean, if the speaker would have come and say, hey, wait, back off or, you know, give me uh, here. We got to reach a compromise. But I don't know. Maybe those discussions take place. But I but I guess that's one of the things that I, I uh, am disappointed in.
1: There's a real assemblyman. We talked a little bit earlier about the real assemblyman, uh, your Twitter handle. So how did... Uh, Your real assembly, that's you. And what do you, what do you, how do you pick what you pick to write about? I mean, to tweet out, what piques your interest particularly?
2: Uh, I think most people would say too much. Uh, (laughs) But um, I don't, I don't, I, I mean, I, I, um, um, when I see something, especially about the process and where I can, uh, I mean, inject a bit of history into it. Um, and I, and I'm trying not to be judgmental and yet I just was, uh, but I, um, um, so I, I, just try to comment on things. And, and as I said, I, if there's anything working with Willie Brown, it's just learned that, you know, we need to, um, you know, be more tolerant and work with people. And, uh, um, so when I see people going up on tangents, I, uh, try to speak up.
1: Yeah, You know, the nice thing about Twitter is you don't go through a filter. You don't have to send a letter to the editor, right? This is one of the great attractions of Twitter. You don't have to send a letter to the editor to make a comment and rest on somebody else's, the appearance of which rests on somebody else's decision, whether proven or not. You're right out there, right out there with your chin out, you know, and that's a lot of fun about Twitter. It also encourages a lot of strange commentary and a lot of strange people out there, but, But for people interested in particular topics, Twitter is kind of a godsend in its own way. I mean, it's really pretty interesting. Yeah,
2: it is, especially for, you know, political addicts like me. I mean, you know, where you just thrive on this stuff and have for a lot of your life. Um, Sometimes I wish there was an editor. So but, um, you know, it just I I try, you know, like I say, too often I um, I I write and I go, oh, my God. And I start typing so fast, I
0: leave words out. I want to. They need spell check.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah.
0: So one question. So you're really good at this. It's clear that you really enjoy it. You really have a knack for this, and there's a reason you sort of become a celebrity in in the yeah. tiny California political world. So it really made me wonder: when you were in office, were you really engaged? Were you were you kind of writing your own press release? I know Brown was kind of famous for that. That his communications people would be like, "Hey." Jerry Brown already wrote the press release. So were you doing that when you were in office, or did you just leave that all to the press people?
2: No, my my background was that I started as a daily newspaper reporter uh at the Long Beach Press Telegram and then their Orange County Evening News.
1: And oh, then you were the Long
2: Beach Press Telegram.
1: A lot of work. <laughs> That explains <Yeah>. everything. <laughs>
2: That's it. And then um and then I um became uh, a manager of Disneyland publicity and then then the manager of creating marketing and then I went from there to host international A&W root beer as VP of marketing so I yeah I wrote all my own stuff just because you know all those times in a newspaper uh I mean I started when I was 16 as uh Writing on the sports desk at the Press Telegram, so I was just used to it. And I and I, I'm not very good at correcting other people's things because I just see it in my own way. So I'd write my own press releases, type them, you know, back in when it, when just after we moved from uh, the st- the stone uh, tablets. So
1: Bruce, thank you so much for this. is great. We're going to do this again too. This isn't the last yeah. time, so this is and fun. And- You know, I I, I told Tim before he did this, I said, it's great that you're, you know, out there now and commenting. I wish when you were in the, when I covered the legislature a bit, Jennifer Kerr was the main person for me at Associated Press, but I never had anybody who would talk to me like that. Maybe one or two, but not in the legislature. They were in the bureaucracy, maybe in the governor's office, but I had, my sources were pathetic in the legislature. It would have been great to sat down and talk with you, you know, off the right. This is all, you know, news to me so it's great you know
2: so great i um i listen i i definitely remember you as i said i i uh uh had a uh, colorful career and uh uh and uh i'm glad you let me share a bit of it
1: hope i didn't bore everybody with well, Not, a bit. No, not a bit. So anytime we, get... we want you to join us now we're going to uh, turn our Thank attention you. to the person who had the worst week in california politics the worst week. Worst week. Worst week. And we think uh, there may be some other contenders, and we think Nelson Asparsa, city council president in Fresno, deserves to be on this list for a bunch of reasons, as we'll get into. So, Tim, what do you think?
0: Yeah, at least according to the story that was uh, in the Fresno Bee from I'm not sure how how to pronounce her name, Brianna Vacari. Uh, He's in a lot of trouble now. Of course, his defense is that it's all politically motivated, and that the the person who's charging him is a Republican, and he's a Democrat, and they're out to get him. And hey, may be true. (laughs) So, uh, but it's there's a lot there, and uh, from my read, it looks like he's going to be in some serious trouble. Uh, What struck
1: me is really weird. Um, He's accused of an extortion count, and the extortion involves trying to force the city attorney to make decisions that the majority of the council members wanted. Uh, And they're all uh, Esparza's friends. And that person, that um, uh, city attorney, complained about it, and to one of Esparza's, I guess, non-friends on the council, when he complained about it, and the city attorney left. He resigned. He didn't want to. He he saw all kind, obviously, all kinds of uh, legal problems here, which have come to pass as far as the sparsa goes. But it's so weird trying to force somebody uh, to do something like that. Bribery is one thing that happens. It's very free. Other things that are pretty common. This one is a little out of the ordinary. I don't know what's how this is all going to play out. But the president of the Fresno Council getting involved in this kind of a fracas seems to me pretty, pretty sad.
2: Well, I, I think, I'm telling you, if you look at the root of most political problems uh, uh, or elected officials get in trouble, hu- unabashed hubris is, at the, is absolutely the root of the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, here's a guy who thought, I have the votes on the council, so now I can make the staff do what I want. And, and you know, do they know who I am? And, uh, and I, will, I will tell you, it's a downfall of a lot of elected officials. Um, and, um, and it seems like from what I've read, it's the same thing. I mean, you know, the, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if that is, a, is it, whether, I mean, you know, he's gonna have to spend a lot of money uh, defending himself. So sure, just sure. Uh, once again, I don't know, we, we, we take these elected office like they become ours. And because of that, we think we can do. If I have the votes, I can do whatever I want. Well, there, that that's not always the case, and and also it just uh, it it ends up um, sometimes being a lot more detrimental than it, it should be. So now,
0: what was what was the worst uh, kind of corruption extortion scandal in your time in the legislature? Do you what do you, what do you remember as standing out the as the worst? Well, most egregious. Well,
2: well Tim. Since your cohort there remembers, I um, I was indicted uh, for political corruption. Uh, even though I, well, I was indicted for political corruption on the fireworks bill, which was I was the floor jockey on, and I wasn't. is that, that Orange bill.
1: County? That Orange County thing, right, the safe right. and sane fireworks. And- yeah,
2: right. Exactly. And um, and the thing is, is that. They believe Moriarty, they had Patrick Moriarty was right. the fireworks king. And they, I mean, he admitted to bribing uh, people and, um, and certainly he was my constituent, didn't bribe me. In fact, my wife and I lost money because we had invested with him. But the bottom line was that there were five legislators who they felt uh, Moriarty had corrupted And they felt if they indicted me uh, that I would be the most likely to roll over on them. And so I I, um, went to trial. uh, At the trial, um, the government's closing arguments were Assemblyman Young violated no state, local, or federal law, but he violated your trust. And because he violated your trust, he should be sent to prison. Well... So the, the jury acquitted me in all the bribery charges, but my uh, I was technically guilty because my campaign treasurer, Bob Eppel, who later became an assemblyman, had misadded some of the, uh, the FPPC things. And so, and he sent them in a the mail, well, that became a mail fraud. But then ultimately, I mean, not ultimately, it went to the appellate court and the appellate court, three member panel, uh, two Republicans, one Democrat, and they go like, "How can you convict somebody?" You know, they said to the U.S. Attorney, "What law school did you go to? How do you convict somebody who didn't break a law?" Well, but he, the, every politician needs to be trustworthy, and he said, "Well, show me in this statute." Well, it's not in the statute, but it's implied. So anyway, it got thrown out. Certainly, I mean, the Moriarty thing—I I was around for Shrimp Scan, which was one, in,
1: uh, and and then. I was around wait, wait, Let me just interject very quickly. Yes. You use the proper term. It's shrimp scam, a word I'm not embarrassed to say I made up at the AP and a lot of people used. And then the LA Times, the pissy LA Times, did a story that said, no, it wasn't shrimp scam. It was price spec for bribery special. Oh my and so I was deflated and no. Eating. And then years later, a couple of papers did a follow up on I don't know what maybe it was a, uh, anniversary or something, including the Times, and that's what they used. They used shrimp scam. <laughs> so, I didn't know you it, were the creator. Uh, Congratulations! That exactly
2: embodies it. That that's nobody true. calls it, you know, like we crime. got out of
1: the AB scam. And you know, the one one little power that the wire services had or used to have was they would name the gangsters. <laughs> so Jake Guzik between. <laughs> became Jake Greasy Thumb sick. I mean, they had all these, you know, I mean, okay, it's pathetic, but what the hell is life other than pathetic, you know? And I, I love that little shrimp scam thing. It's a little footnote oh, to history that nobody I, cares about, but- No, that. I do. Congratulations.
2: Because I, I, like I said, you could, anybody who is around and still remembers certainly wouldn't call it brine skin. It's shrimp skin, And yeah, you're the creator. I, that was accurate. So no, I mean, so I was around for that. I, I wasn't involved in any of these things, but I was around for that. Uh, I was around when Joe Montoya got invited, indicted. And then when Alan Robbins was oh, yeah. wearing a wire, I mean, Alan was a friend of mine. Um, and I remember Robbins coming up to me and going, don't talk to me. Don't talk
1: to me. And I never understood why until later, you know, and it's like he was wearing There, a there wire. were some lobbyists in uh, 925 L Street and uh, one uh, Dick Tagali. I think he was. And he was coming around. He would come around maybe once a week to our bureau and give us some M&Ms, you know, mm-hmm. and we would chat and stuff. Well, he told us later that um, one time Alan Robbins came up to him uh, and said, are there any, are there any favors? Do you need anything, any help over there? I'd be happy to help you out. I, and he's so clear he was trolling and he uh, was wearing a wire. Uh, yeah.
2: and- well, my, my recently departed friend, Don Heller, Um, said the best thing, as long as there's sewers, Alan Robbins will never want for transportation.
1: (laughs) (laughs) whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, man. Uh, uh, Yeah, he said that. That's great.
2: Yeah, in in fact, one other quick Hellerism is he he said in court, they were talking about uh, another legislator and, and about having escorts, and Heller stood up and said, listen, you don't understand. Some dates were easier than others. <laughs>
1: like, oh my god. Hell or anyway. Yeah. Well, so it, just, it was, turns out that was a pretty good week in California anyway, Tim. Right? That was a lot of fun. So yeah, I think I feel
0: like I asked the uh so uh so anyway, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Yeah, um,
1: my question. <laughs> yeah, I, you got it. You got it. Well, uh again, Bruce, Bruce thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time. It was great talking with you. Uh Tim, I, thank you so much. Thank you, and both. Uh this is John Howard saying we will talk to you next time around. Adios.
0: Adios. Bye-bye. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.